This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back to The Rounds Table, listeners. Thanks for tuning in this week as always. Uh, my name is Kieran Quinn. I'm a fellow in general medicine at the University of Toronto. And we're joined by our familiar face and always a pleasant guest at the table. It's Dr. Paxton Back, who is also a fellow in general medicine at the University of British Columbia. Paxton, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure, Kieran. This week is not a sweet week. It's a salty week. So pucker up and listen to what Paxton's got for you. Paxton, take it away. Oh, Kieran. So I'll be honest, I almost didn't choose this paper because I was dreading the puns that I was going to get all uh, episode long. So I'm actually presenting uh, twin papers today that were published recently in the New England Journal. They came out at the beginning of March. The paper is entitled um, Balanced Crystalloids versus Saline in Non-Critically Ill Adults, and it's twin paper Balanced Crystalloids versus Saline in Critically Ill Adults, shortened as the SMART and SALTED trials. Uh, so as I mentioned, these were published at the beginning of March in the New England Journal by a large group of investigators, all centered out of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Full disclosure, I was definitely salivating at the opportunity of the variety of puns you could go, but maybe I'll keep it under wraps at your request. Who knows? Tell us anyways, Paxson, what's the bottom line for this article? So the bottom line between these two trials, Kieran, is these twin randomized open-label crossover trials, the use of balanced crystalloids, i.e. ringers, lactate, or plasmolite, compared to normal saline, reduced a composite outcome of death, new renal replacement therapy, and persistent renal dysfunction in critically ill, but not in non-critically ill adults. You're absolutely right. We'll see what the results have to show, but there have been several times when nurses have said, what kind of fluid do you want to give, doctor? And I'll say, I don't know, give ringers or whatever, and they'll say, well, actually, all we have is saline on the floor, and I just say something like, I don't think there's a difference. Anyways, just go ahead and give them a liter of saline. So let's find out if that was a risky thing to do. Tell me, Paxton, what was the design of these studies and where did they conduct these trials? So pretty straightforward design overall, Kieran. These were pragmatic, cluster-randomized, multiple crossover trials done at a single site at, at the medical center at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. The one paper included all patients that were admitted to the intensive care unit, and the other paper included all of those that were treated in the emergency room and then admitted elsewhere in the hospital. Nashville, Tennessee, home of the best hot chicken I've ever had. Tell me, Paxson, who are the patients that they included in this study? <laughs> I'm not going to make a joke about Hattie B's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Kieran, both of these papers enrolled a wide variety of patients. Essentially, their pool was patients showing up at the hospital, individuals aged 18 years older, who were admitted, as I mentioned, either to the ICU or to a ward that was not part of one of the intensive care units. Any patient who was admitted to the ICU was included in the trial, and any patient admitted to a medical ward who received at least 500 cc's of IV fluid in the emergency room were admitted. If patients were admitted, discharged, and then admitted at a later date that were still within the timeline of the trial, they were considered a new data point, although a pre-specified sensitivity analysis also later looked at first admissions only. Okay, and with these patients who were admitted either to the medical ward or to the ICU, what was the intervention as far as the fluid resuscitation strategies? So as I mentioned, this is a pragmatic trial. So essentially, within the emergency room, a decision was made on the first day of each month to administer all of one particular fluid to patients. So on one month, every patient in the emergency room would get normal saline. The next month, they would all get a balanced crystalloid solution, either ringers or plasma light. Now, 
the IV fluid was up to the discretion of the treating physician. If they felt that they needed to deviate from protocol for some reason, that was certainly allowed. But the default fluid on a month-by-month basis rotated between normal saline and one of these uh, balanced crystalloids. So tell me, Paxson, were there any particular concerns or exclusions that they applied around the patients they included? Yeah, yeah. There's one key thing within the patients who were not admitted to the ICU. So those who were admitted to the ward, their fluid administration during their time in the emergency room was randomized to one of these two fluids. But once they were admitted to the ward, they were no longer participating in the randomized part of the protocol. So on the wards, we have no data about what fluid they received there from there on out during their hospital admission that was entirely up to the discretion of their of the treating physician on the floor so it was really their upfront sort of resuscitation in the emerge that was included i was just it contrasted to that in the icu their randomization did persist throughout their stay in the icu although again one important twist is that if somebody was in the icu during the turnover from one month to the next the fluid they received did change even though they had been initially enrolled in one with one particular fluid. Interesting. So contamination just based on the pragmatic design on the randomization by month. Okay. So what did they look to measure then as far as the efficacy? So they had very similar endpoints between the two, pa- two papers, but not the same. So again, in the medical patients, in those who are non-ICU, their primary endpoint was what they called hospital-free days up to day 28. So this was a composite of in-hospital death and hospital length of stay. If a patient died, they were considered to have zero hospital-free days up to day 28. They had three secondary endpoints in the non-medical patients. One was a composite of major adverse kidney events that was composed of death, new renal replacement therapy, or persistent kidney injury. One was a stage two or higher AKI, and one was in hospital death. And tell me about then the primary endpoints for the ICU patients, those admitted to the intensive care unit. So the primary endpoint in the ICU was actually the that one of those secondary endpoints, that's that major adverse kidney events, were the composite of death, new renal replacement therapy, or persistent renal dysfunction. Within the ICU patients, they had a whole host of secondary outcomes, including things like death outcomes at 30 and 60 days, ICU-free days, days off of ventilator, off of pressors, et cetera, et cetera. So they looked at a number of secondary outcomes. Okay, so with regards to your concerns around the non-ICU patients, they're following these patients up to a month following hospitalization to look for hospital death or hospital length of stay? Exactly, yeah. All right, Paxton, so I think I get a good idea then of what they're doing here in these two different trials. When we first talked about this trial, to put it on the show, you had mentioned some interesting statistical stuff, and I, I warn you, we're going to talk a little bit about statistics, but, but I think it's really interesting and important. So go ahead, Paxton, what did you want to talk about? Yeah, I just wanted to take one step back and highlight one little thing that they did include in their methods, which was fairly small, but I thought very important to note because we so often see people not addressing this head on in their methods. And that was how they approached these multiple comparisons that they were doing. So they came outright in their first trial and noted that with their secondary endpoint, they performed what's called a Bonferroni adjustment. In other words, um, they took into account the likelihood of randomly coming up with a P of less than 0.005 and adjusted their p-value accordingly such that their threshold for a statistical significance in their secondary outcome was actually 0.017 instead of more or more accepted at 0.05. 
In the other trial, because they looked at, I think, 15 or so secondary outcomes, they were unable to do the same kind of adjustment because it would mean p-values were ridiculously low in order to achieve significance. So all they did instead is note outright in their methods that there was at least a 51.2% chance that at least one of their secondary outcomes was going to achieve quote-unquote significance just by chance. Yeah. So in other words, the more you you look for something, the more likely you are to find it by chance. And if you adjust your statistical thresholds for significance, that's the Bonfroni adjustment, you're being more conservative. I think that's a reasonable and, and quite a responsible approach to uh, to this kind of a study. So good on them. Tell me, Paxson, what were the findings then of these two trials? What did, what did they come up with? So getting into the nitty gritty, these trials ran between, they're slightly off cycle from one another, but basically ran from 2015 to 2017. And they enrolled large numbers of patients. I've never been to, to Vanderbilt University, but it sounds like quite a sizable hospital. So within the non-ICU branch, they enrolled over 13,000 patients over that timeline. And in the ICU branch, actually over 15,000 patients in under two years enrolled in the trial. So really significant numbers. It was a big hospital. Yeah, absolutely. An interesting thing, they noted that the median volume received by patients in both trials was actually quite small. It was on average one liter of fluid was what they received. And that was not daily. That was just over the over their time in the study, they received approximately one liter of one of these two IV fluids. They also note that in the non-ICU patients, in those receiving fluids in the eMERGE, nearly 90% of them received the IV fluid that they were randomized to, whereas in the ICU, just about 5% of patients actually received a different fluid as a part of that crossover from one month to the next. So really, probably not as big of an issue as it sounded like it might be to me when I initially read that. Right, so not a lot of contamination is kind of what they're trying to say, but interestingly, the actual volume of resuscitation was quite low comparatively, especially if you're dealing with somebody with severe sepsis. So we'll keep that in mind as you take us through the results. Yeah, surprisingly low, I'd say. So bottom line result-wise, in the non-ICU patients, in the medical patients, there was no difference in hospital-free days between the two arms of the trial. When they looked at their secondary outcomes, they did see a slight decrease noted in that composite of major adverse kidney events, a uh, absolute risk reduction of approximately 1%. It was actually 0.9%. Contrast that to the patients in the ICU, and again, they saw a lower rate, or here they saw a low rate of the primary outcome, which was that composite of major adverse kidney events. Here they saw, again, an absolute risk reduction of approximately 1%. So between the two trials, um, in both of them, the, the number they needed to treat was about 100, but in the ICU patients, that was with regards to their primary outcome, whereas in the non-ICU patients, that was one of their secondary outcomes. Okay. And considering just how common getting a liter of fluid is, in fact, most people who walk through the emergency room often get an ECG and a liter of fluid, I would say that a number needed to treat of 111 on the scale of how often we use these interventions isn't all that big. Yeah, so and that was one of the points that the authors made. But one of the things that I'd like to point out about the results is that, as I mentioned, the patients did not actually receive as much fluid as you might expect. It kind of surprised me that, especially in an ICU patient, they only received a liter of fluid on average. So when they uh, took those ICU patients and they looked at a pre-specified subgroup and those receiving large volumes of intravenous fluid, which they defined as more than two liters, 
or those who were admitted with the diagnosis of sepsis, here we actually saw a significant mortality benefit associated with the fluid of choice. And in here, the absolute risk reduction in mortality for using balanced crystalloids versus normal saline was 4%. Interesting. It does throw a little bit of a wrench in the overall picture, but I think it's an important one. So tell me then, Paxson, what concerns do you have or what points did you want to highlight as far as the sort of interpretation and dissection of these trials? Yeah, so I mean, some limitations are certainly unavoidable here. Um, we know that this was a single center, so how generalizable it will be will always be a question. And we know that it's an unblinded study, so certainly uh, we've seen time and again how that may affect our results. But as you alluded to, Kieran, a number needed to treat of a of a hundred doesn't sound particularly impressive until you think of how much fluid we're administering, and we then. When you frame it in that context, that's actually a fairly significant impact, I think. Further to that, you could hypothesize that in certain populations, the impact may be even greater than that. And certainly this is more of a hypothesis. We can't say this from these trials themselves. But when we keep in mind that the amount of fluid administered was not terribly high, when we keep in mind that the fact that the difference we're seeing in that secondary outcome in the medical patients was depending only on the upfront fluid they received in the emergency room and not through the duration of their stay. Both of those make me wonder whether in patients who are receiving more fluid throughout their hospital stay, which we certainly see often in our medical wards, whether maybe the impact would be greater. And the last thing that I'd really, really like to point out in the ICU trial is the characteristics of the patients enrolled in the ICU because I ask whether you know our ICU patients in Canada are going to be the same as their ICU patients in Nashville, and they actually break them down for me, and I don't think that they are. So looking at the patients that they included admitted to the ICU, 15% of them approximately had a diagnosis of sepsis on admission, which at least in the ICUs that I'm working at would be quite low. One third of them were ventilated, and only one quarter of them were on vasopressors. In the ICUs that I tend to work in, if you're not tubed or if you're not getting pressors, you're not going to get through the door. So I do think that their ICUs probably consist of a bit of a more heterogeneous, maybe not quite as sick population as what we see in our ICUs in Canada, or at least in Vancouver. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And if you look at the subgroup analysis and they break it down by the intensive care unit, you know, there's a roughly 2,500 medical ICU patients. But you have fifteen, almost 1,500 cardiac, almost 1,500 neurologic, almost 1,500 traumatic ICU patients, and then just under 700 surgical ICU patients. So I think you're right in the sense that you're seeing a large representation from the non-medical surgical ICU population in this trial as well. Mm-hmm. And I can think of many, many instances, I mean, almost on a daily basis in medicine, where I admit a patient to the medical ward with a diagnosis of sepsis who's going to end up getting more than two liters of fluid from me. Yeah. Okay, so take it home for us. Tell us the main learning points. And if you can, just because we've had a lot of back and forth discussion here, what what are you going to do with this information? So the main learning points of this article is that um, in ICU patients, at a single center in Nashville, the use of balanced crystalloid, which I should mention was primarily ringers, about 95% of the balanced crystalloid they gave out was ringers versus plasmolate. So in those receiving ringers compared to normal saline, it improved a composite outcome of death, new renal replacement therapy, or persistent renal dysfunction with an NNT of approximately 100. 
Yeah, so that that is the bottom line that you can say you know, from the trials themselves. But I look at this and I find this quite interesting because as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Kieran, normal saline's my default. It just rolls off the tongue. And as you mentioned, certainly sometimes I'll ask to give somebody some plasma light and I'll get kind of a confused look. We don't stock that on the ward. And I'm like, eh, give them some saline. Like, that's probably just fine. This really, really makes me question that because even in all comers, if a number needed to treat of 100 for IV fluid is significant for me. And as I mentioned, I, I think we tend to take care on average of some sicker people than they're including this trial where some of the subgroup data here suggests this impact may even be greater. I don't have a reason to want to use normal saline other than it's just my default. So I may switch my default now to Ringer's lactate or plasmolite, whatever's available, based on this trial. I think I'm certainly going to be using a lot more of that, or at least kind of trying to tailor my IV fluid to the specific patient that I'm seeing in front of me. I think that's fair. I mean, certainly Ringer's lactate, as far as we know, doesn't have a propensity to cause more harm in any way. And so if it's available and there's potential for benefit in this case, and I don't think there's a hugely different cost between the two solutions, then why not use that? I think that's a a very reasonable thing. And certainly it will make me pause the next time a nurse asks me, you know, would you have a specific fluid you want to give them? I might might push a little bit harder and say, "I, I actually would prefer Ringer's lactate in this septic patient right now, please. Yeah, I'd say this is practice changing for me. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's always good that we have a practice changing trial on the show. Thank you, Paxson, for taking us through two trials in one. You got a twofer today. Let's shift gears entirely. We're out of the ICU. We're now talking about quadrupling inhaled corticosteroid doses in asthma. Now, Dr. McCleaver's group published this trial in the New England Journal of Medicine in March of 2018, so fresh off the press at the time of this recording. And I thought this would be interesting to discuss at the table. Absolutely, Kieran. Yeah, I was reading this paper with some uh, interest as well. So take a deep breath here. (sighs) The bottom line is that this pragmatic, unblinded, randomized trial of just over 1,900 adults and adolescents with asthma who were receiving inhaled corticosteroids, a self-management plan that included temporarily quadrupling the inhaled corticosteroid dosage when asthma symptoms began to worsen, resulted in fewer severe asthma exacerbations than a plan in which the dose was not increased. Okay, and and, uh, who were the specific patients that they enrolled then? What were their characteristics? So if you were an individual who was aged 16 years and older, and you had a clinical diagnosis of asthma, I'm going to make a quick side plug for the rounds table. Remember, we covered a JAMA article that talked about clinician-diagnosed asthma and just how many people actually didn't have asthma, but nevertheless, this was a clinical diagnosis not required to be done by PFTs. And these individuals had at least one exacerbation in the past year that required oral glucocorticosteroids. Then you were included as being eligible in the trial. They excluded individuals with COPD or a greater than 20 pack year history of smoking as the most important pieces of exclusion criteria that I'll highlight. Okay, and I saw a couple of important stratifications, I think, there with the randomization too, including uh, smoking as well as uh, overall glucocorticoid dose. You're absolutely right, Paxson. So they thought that there was two things that were so important that they should be stratified right up front in the randomization process. One was whether you were an active current smoker, and the second was whether you were on high or lower doses of your inhaled glucocorticoids. Okay, now I think the intervention is sort of right up front there in the title of the article, but give us a little bit more information as to how they uh, structured that intervention. So 
if you can picture in your head, for those of you familiar with an asthma action plan, there's really kind of three columns, a green zone, a yellow zone, and a red zone. And in England, they call that zone one, zone two, and zone three. So green zone, you're under control, everything is happy, you're doing well. Yellow zone, things are starting to get worse. You're finding that you're awake at night because of your asthma. If you monitor your peak flows, they're less than 80%. Or if you are having increasing use of your reliever medication like salbutamol, for example, then things are starting to go awry. And those are the, the, the parts in the asthma action plan that tell you to do something but not necessarily go to the emergency room. So you might increase your inhaled corticosteroid, you might take oral glucocorticoids, uh, you might be uh, monitoring and then heading to the emergency department if you enter into the red zone where things are bad, not getting better, uh, and you need to seek help. So what this trial did was to randomize people who were in the yellow zone to quadruple their inhaled corticosteroid or not to change the dose of their inhaled corticosteroid when they experience those symptoms I described of deteriorating asthma. So if you quadrupled your home dose, and now that could be different dosing between individuals as we mentioned and as they were stratified, they did that for a maximum of 14 days or until symptoms returned back to normal. And the control group followed their standard action plan to use the reliever medications and proceed to the next step if the control was not improved, which also might include administering oral glucocorticoids. Finally, all individuals, whether you were randomized to increasing your dose or not, would schedule a visit with a physician shortly after this uh, you entered into the yellow zone for general follow-up and reassessment. So they really tried to pick out those people who were kind of teetering on that fence, trying to keep them from coming to, from ending up in hospital. That's exactly right. And so what they measured as a primary outcome was the time to first severe asthma exacerbation. So this is a time to event trial. And that severe asthma exacerbation was defined as needing treatment with oral systemic glucocorticoids, or if you had an unscheduled healthcare consultation for asthma after following individuals for a period of one year. So that was the duration of follow-up. The secondary outcomes they looked at was just a proportion of individuals as opposed to a time to event who had severe asthma exacerbation. They did some quality of life measures and they did some objective measures of control by measuring cumulative quantification of peak flows over time. Finally, they wanted some counterbalancing safety measures and they looked at adverse events and serious adverse events relating to established uh, side effects of inhaled glucocorticoids uh, such as pneumonia. And those were reported during the 14 days and up to four weeks after the activation of the yellow zone. So when you entered into that yellow zone in the self-management plan. Okay, so that sounds pretty reasonable to me. And let's get to the heart of it then. What did they, what did they actually find? So your typical patients were a middle-aged individual, about 56 years old. In fact, most of them were non-smoking, thankfully. Asthmatics in this trial are non-smoking asthmatics by, as a general rule. And they were more frequently a woman. And they were on combination inhalers with an average inhaled corticosteroid dose of 800 micrograms a day. Now, almost 60% of the participants reached the yellow zone by the one-year follow-up time point. That's, that in and of itself, I think, is quite impressive, That just how uh, frequent exacerbations are in individuals with asthma. Wow, that seems really high, Kieran. Was that higher than expected? In fact, it was greatly more than expected. So when they designed their trial they powered it to detect a 30% difference in between groups 
and they made the assumption that the the control group would have an event rate that is the exacerbation rate of 13% and it ended up being about 60% in each group so very very uh, impressive numbers interesting uh, i wonder if that's due to the 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 way that they they're recruiting patients where they're recruiting maybe a slightly more prone to exacerbation population yeah, certainly possible. And that another sort of impressive number to that was that 50% actually had a severe exacerbation requiring hospitalization. So that was, uh, again, quite shocking. So if you looked at the primary outcome, the rates of asthma exacerbations, severe asthma exacerbations, we saw a hazard of 0.81. So you had a lower hazard. So think of it as a, an odds over time of having an asthma exacerbation if you quadrupled your inhaled corticosteroid. If you want to think about that just in proportions to keep it a little bit simpler in your mind, 45% of individuals in the quadrupling group as compared with 52% in the non-quadrupling group reported a severe exacerbation. And if you looked at that uh, in the context of smoking status or baseline dose of inhaled corticosteroid at the time of randomization, it didn't make any difference of the overall effect. Wow, so that's a pretty significant effect then, considering how easy of an intervention really they proposed. Yeah, it is pretty impressive, although we'll see in a minute why it may not actually be true, so to speak. The only other thing I wanted to point out before we talk about that is that there was a 7% absolute difference in those who used systemic glucocorticoids between the groups, so that was lower in the quadrupling uh, intervention arm, and quality of life was reported to be higher in that group as well. Okay, so they sort of saw saw benefit across the board then looking at their secondary outcomes as well. So here's where the trial gets a little bit muddy in interpreting the results. So they powered their study to begin with to detect, and what they, what they called to be significant as well was a 30% reduction in the primary outcome but they didn't see that so they kind of saw about a 19% reduction really so it may be statistically significant from the numbers they have in their trial but if you if you say something is supposed to be 30% and you end up finding the difference is far less is that actually a clinically important difference ah so now we're getting into some of the semantics yeah the other concerns obviously which you mentioned in your trial and apply to this as well it's an open-label trial, so the nature of that introduces all sorts of bias around, around how participants are feeling and using their rescue medications because they know what they're doing as far as their yellow zone activation plan. And the last thing is that 20% of pe people decline to participate. And so you might have some concerns around generalizability about who are the patients that we are recruiting in this trial they have a higher exacerbation rate than we would normally expect, and maybe those who are participating are more likely to be following their action plans than those who decline to participate. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, Karen, I, the, the the lack of binding in this is a real concern for me. Um, they actually, I noticed that they addressed this in their discussion, and they they suggested that any uh, any benefit that we're seeing here due to the lack of blinding likely reflects what they say here is the beneficial effects likely to be seen in clinical practice that are mixed, missed in strict explanatory studies. And I'm going to be honest, I don't buy that. Yeah. And I think your point is well taken. I don't think a lot of experts in this field are buying the results of this trial either. So there was a buddy article to this 
in the New England that was published in children where they quintupled their dose of inhaled corticosteroids and they did not find any overall benefit uh, with respect uh, to asthma exacerbations in that trial. Um, and, you know, the, there's a, a, a nice accompanying editorial that talks about this as well. And so uh, I think that um, the degree of benefit overall that we see here is debatable and whether this is truly something that should be practice changing. Certainly to me, it doesn't impress me enough to start advising my patients to quadruple their inhaled corticosteroid dose, especially if I'm placing it in the context of the prior literature too, which also hasn't found a difference. That's probably a fair assessment, Kieran, but I got to say, likewise, I am going to stick with my more traditional action plans for now until uh, until I see something a little bit more compelling here, I think. So not a practice-changing trial for this one, but the first one, I think, on both of our accounts is practice-changing. Well, Paxton, great show, one for two. It's my favorite part of the show now. It's the Good Stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Paxton, what is catching your eye this week and tipping the salt shaker over on the table? I was reading an interesting article uh, this week. So, Kieran, you and I, general internists, see a fair amount of obesity, I think it's safe to say. And we know that it's not good for you. Uh, am, am, I, am I safe to say that? Obesity is not a good thing, I would say, overall in a context of health, correct. I know, I'm, go- I'm really going on a limb here. But I was reading an article uh, this week talking about the effect of obesity on one's actual ability to taste. So there was a paper that came out recently that um, caught a lot of attention in the media that was looking at a mouse model of obesity and actually feeding mice what they termed an obesogenic diet and then actually counting uh, the papilla in their tongue, counting the number of taste buds that they had. And what they found is that in that mice they're feeding this this, this high calorie diet to, that they actually had a 25% reduction in the number of taste buds that they had on their tongue. So not only is it bad for your health, it's bad for your gastronomy? Well, first off, I mean, that's no fun, I suppose, just if, you're, if you're cutting your, your taste buds down by a quarter. But what they actually proposed is that this could lead people with obesity, with this reduction in taste buds, to, to eat more or to crave richer foods, more flavorful foods, more fatty foods, in order to try and replicate that stimulus that they're missing out on for lack of taste buds. Ah, self-propelling vicious cycle, potentially, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and they actually they actually t- looked at this in the context of inflammation, which we know is, is goes part and parcel with obesity, and in a TNF-alpha knockout model, so a model of mice that is unable to generate the same level of inflammation, they didn't see the same reduction, so they proposed that this reduction is being mediated by uh, inflammatory mediators and, and p- potentially um, opening the door to some kind of intervention there. Neat. Well, I'm working on a paper right now, and I was quoting the Hippocratic Oath in the paper, and I needed a reference for it. So I thought, where am I going to find a reference for the Hippocratic Oath? And it turns out, when I was trying to find this reference, that this idea of primum non nocere, my apologies if I've totally destroyed that Latin pronunciation, but the, the term first do no harm actually may not even have come from Hippocrates. It turns out that some far smarter medical ethicists and historians than me determined that the pathologist and clinician Auguste Francois Chomel, who was in the 1788 to 1858 was his life, 
he was the one who was credited actually with this uh, phrase and it was a teaching that was an axiom of his oral teaching to his students but somehow this has been credited to Hippocrates despite the fact that the translations don't actually contain that phrasing at all so I kind of thought that was neat how we've you remember you and I at medical school we had to say that as part of our first inauguration into Queen's Medical School and it may be totally not true to begin with. I do remember that. That's interesting. I actually have heard before. I knew that that wasn't part of the original Hippocratic Oath, but I had no idea that it actually was so recent, just two or three hundred years ago. That's um, that's quite interesting. I threw my medical degree down in disgust, and I'll never practice again. No, I'm just joking. But it was still an interesting thing to learn about, nevertheless. And as always, it's interesting and fa- and fun to have you on the show, Pax. And thanks for joining us for another week on the Rounds Table. We hope to have you back sometime soon. Oh, well, pleasure as always, Kieran. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at Roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. 